Hello, my name is Fran Stoddard. Today, the Orton Family Foundation is pleased to offer this event on sustaining volunteer energy and enthusiasm, particularly in small towns where resources can be limited. On these Heart and Soul Talks, we feature stories and insights from Community Heart and Soul, a community development model that builds stronger, healthier, and more economically vibrant small cities and towns. Joining us today are two women with vast experience in volunteer recruitment, training, and management. I'd like to welcome Sarah Leitner, Senior Associate of Programs and Training at the Orton Family Foundation. Thank you for joining the call today, Sarah. Thank you, Fran. It's great to be here. And Debbie Moreno, uh, she's the Project Coordinator of Galesburg on Track, a community heart and soul project in Galesburg, Illinois. Thanks for taking the time from your frontline work to share your knowledge and stories, Debbie. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Great. Before we get to our guest stories, I'd like to cover just a few logistics. Each speaker will offer brief presentations, then we'll have time for questions. Thanks to the many who have already sent in questions with your registration. We have over 380 registrants for our call today from across North America and beyond, so we'll be muting our listeners. We have muted our listeners to get as clean an audio signal as possible. In your email is a link to our Google document for note-taking, comments, and questions. Orton's Caitlin Davison will be taking notes that she will proofread and refine after the call, providing a great resource for you in the future. You can add your own comments, suggestions, or questions to the document in real time in the edit mode. However, the edit mode in Google Docs is limited to 50 contributors at a time, so if you're not active in the document, please return to the view-only mode to allow others to contribute. We'll also leave this document up after the call for your continued input and reference. Then in a few days, we'll send the link to the call notes and the recording to all registrants. If you're having trouble with Google Docs during the call, try the refresh icon. If you're having any technical issues, besides that, you can email Caitlin Davison at cdavison@orton.org. Thanks so much. So now, on to our guests. Sarah Leitner is a Senior Associate of Programs here at the Orton Family Foundation. Before joining Orton, she spent 13 years volunteering and working with the Peace Corps, um, with volunteers in the Peace Corps. She was the Director of Programming and Training for the Eastern Caribbean for the Eastern Caribbean, and for Vanuatu in the South Pacific. Sarah directed volunteer and partner trainings and programming opportunities, ensuring that volunteers received the support needed to be successful. Sounds perfect for this call. Sarah, go ahead. Great. Thank you, Fran. Well, when I, when I really think about it, my desire to jump on a plane and travel across the world to join the Peace Corps isn't really that surprising because for my entire life, I had been surrounded by people who had volunteered their time, their talents, and their food as part of their daily life. I grew up in a small farming community in western Iowa where my family has lived for the past seven generations. So being a church trustee or bringing a pie to a bake sale or providing food for a fundraiser that's really all just a part of the fabric of community life in small town Iowa where I grew up. And really that's the way it is, I think, in most communities throughout the United States. So when I joined the Peace Corps, and I know what I'm saying is pretty much what everybody says about the Peace Corps, I really did have no idea how it was going to change my life. But for me, it really changed my life in ways that I did not even anticipate. So I ended up staying in the Republic of Vanuatu, 
which is an island chain in the South Pacific, kind of between Fiji and Australia. As a Peace Corps volunteer for five years, which is kind of longer than usual, but it was pretty good stuff. And I taught high school English in two different schools. One was Francophone, or French-speaking, and one was Anglophone, or English-speaking. And then I worked with a local counterpart to write and publish the country's first high school history curriculum, which was presented to the Republic of Vanuatu on its 25th anniversary of independence. But that's not really where my Peace Corps story ended. It's where it really began. So after going to graduate school back in the States, I returned to Vanuatu as a Peace Corps staff, where I supported Peace Corps volunteers during their service. I also worked with our local partners in country to design programming that made sense for Vanuatu's rural communities in the health and education sectors. And after five years in Vanuatu, my family and I then moved to the Eastern Caribbean, where I continued to do that same kind of work supporting volunteers um, in the countries of St. Lucia, Dominica, St. Vincent, and Grenada. So when I think about my years as a Peace Corps volunteer, my decision to continue re-upping after the first two years really makes a lot of sense. Why? Because first, I really loved my work. I was using skills that I already had, first as a teacher, and then as a writer and someone who loved studying history. Secondly, I felt like I was needed. I wasn't just, you know, filling a slot, but I was contributing to the lives of young people through their education and in their educational system. And I also I was working alongside local teachers, which was something that I really loved to do. And of course, as everyone always says, I learned so much from them that I, than I ever even taught to them. I wasn't working in a bubble, and I felt like my contributions were critical to the bigger picture of Vanuatu's educational system. And thirdly, I really felt appreciated. I knew that my dedication was recognized by the school where I was teaching, by the group of women that I helped with their basket business, and by the country's Ministry of Education. And finally, I really felt fulfilled in what I was doing. I knew that what I was doing was what I was meant to do my, with my life at that point in time. So did I feel all those great, warm, and fuzzy things all the time? Of course I didn't. There were times when I thought, why am I living out my 20s in a convent in the Pacific, teaching school in this really deserted place? And it was really hard sometimes. But even in those times, I knew that I was contributing to something larger and that I was working alongside others who cared and that ultimately I was helping to bring about change. And that was the philosophy that I then carried into my subsequent work supporting Peace Corps volunteers, and then even in my work here at Orton with the Community Heart and Soul uh, program. Ideally, volunteers love, or at least like, what they're doing. They need to feel needed, and they need to feel like they understand where their work significantly contributes to a bigger something, that larger picture. They deserve to experience that feeling of being appreciated for what they're doing, and it all comes together when they feel a sense of fulfillment in their work, however that may look to them. So I integrated this into my daily life for my eight years of working and supporting Peace Corps volunteers in their work and in their cultural integration. 
And I feel like this same philosophy can really apply to any work that a volunteer is doing or any volunteer program, whether it's a two-year posting as a community health volunteer in a Peace Corps country, or if it's something to do with gathering stories in a heart and soul project in a town in a heart and soul community. So I wanted to take some time today to take a deeper look at some of these things that I just talked about in terms of volunteers and inspiring, supporting, and motivating them. So the first thing is matching that volunteer passion with the work that the volunteer is doing. So if you've got a volunteer who loves order and loves structure, they probably enjoy working on a spreadsheet or creating a really good mailing list. And if someone loves talking with people, that sounds like a really great fit for working at a booth at the county fair or leading a story circle in a community's heart and soul project. When you're asking someone to volunteer, it's a great idea to make sure that you're asking them to do something that they'll enjoy. When I love to do something, you can see it in the way I smile, in my attitude, and in that drive that I have to complete the tasks that I've been asked to do. And I know that personally I'm more likely to put in my everything when I'm doing something that I enjoy, and probably I'm more likely to come out and do it again when I love what I'm doing. So that's the first one, matching volunteer passions with volunteer work. So the second thing I talked about was showing the volunteer the bigger picture so that the volunteer understands that they're contributing to something larger. So essentially this is related to the idea of purpose. It's important for a volunteer to see how the work that he or she is doing plugs into or contributes to something larger. This provides context and it also helps the volunteer understand how the work is needed for greater success. For example, let's say that you asked me to plant flowers along the trail on the outskirts of town. Honestly, that sounds like a pretty good job to me because I enjoy planting flowers and I love being outside in the sun. But you could also tell me that this trail is part of one of our town's beautification initiatives and that we've gotten the money for the flowers from a statewide grant that was only given to seven towns in our state, so we feel pretty proud of that. And you could also tell me that I'm part of a group of 12 other volunteers who are also going to be helping me in managing these flower beds. So when you give me this additional information and when you tell me more about the larger picture, you can help me see how my contribution really fits into the larger picture. And I think that's really important in letting the volunteer understand how they're contributing to the larger picture. So the third thing I wanted to talk about is this idea of appreciation. And this is something that we can never underestimate when it comes to volunteering. So when, when I receive a thank you card or even a smile and a thank you, I feel good about that. And I feel good because it makes me feel good that I have helped someone. So by receiving that additional pat on the back, it makes me feel good to know that someone recognizes what I did. And we can show our appreciation in all sorts of ways. Now, when I was working with Peace Corps volunteers, Food was always the way into everyone's heart, especially American comfort food like mac and cheese. But honestly, I think that the same goes for any group of volunteers. 
food shows love and it shows happiness and it shows appreciation. So does public recognition for some people. Some people don't like that. Or for some, just writing a nice card or a nice thank you can make them feel appreciated for what they've done. So know your volunteers so that you can choose the best way to show them how much you appreciate what they've done. And so finally, the last thing I wanted to talk about was this thing called fulfillment. And that means different things to different people. But in general, it's just that good feeling of all of this wrapped up together. Contributing to something greater, being part of a team of people who's working toward a goal, doing something that is enjoyable, that you love doing, and being recognized for what you are doing. Fulfillment is like the bow on the present. It just really tops it all off. So when I feel fulfilled in what I'm doing, I am much, much more likely to volunteer to do it all over again. So today I just wanted to talk to everyone about how to motivate and inspire volunteers. And I hope that I've sparked some ideas for you or made you think about ways that you might be able to do that with volunteers that you're working with, whether that's in a community project, in your heart and soul work, or in any other activities that volunteer that involve volunteers and volunteering. And so one last thing I wanted to say is that when I see volunteers in action, that motivates and inspires me. And so in a recent trip that I took back to my hometown in Iowa, I was reminded of how volunteerism really strengthens the fabric of community life. Things get done and the community is a better, more supportive place because volunteering is just a part of everybody's everyday life. And I felt inspired by what I saw when I was home. And I felt proud to be from a place where volunteerism holds such an important place in everybody's life. And I made sure to tell people that too when I saw all the wonderful volunteering that, I, that was happening. So just in conclusion, I just want to make sure that you don't hesitate to let your volunteers know how their dedication, skills, and commitment also makes you feel like you want to do the same. Thank you very much. All right, Sarah, thank you so much. That was great. It's, um, this is almost a good advertisement for people from the Midwest, all you fine folks right. from the Midwest. <laughs> we have another one. Uh, not that this, uh, this kind of volunteering doesn't happen on, on either coast as well. Um, and from north to south. But um, next up, we have Debbie Moreno. Um, Moreno, she is a journalist, a poet, a parent, and a very active volunteer. Skills and experience that have transferred to her role as project coordinator of Galesburg on Track, a community heart and soul project in Galesburg, Illinois. Debbie is devoted to effective communication with residents and has built a strong and dedicated group of volunteers that represent a broad range of perspectives. Congratulations, Debbie, on a great job there, and welcome to you. Go ahead and tell us about uh, your your tips on volunteers and about Galesburg. Okay, thank you so much, Fran. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, well, I am an imperfect volunteer, sort of the opposite of Sarah in some ways. Um, I come from more of a grouchy, non-volunteer family. The message I received while growing up was that sucker volunteers were going nowhere fast because someone was exploiting them for free labor. The world was dog-eat-dog, -dog, and when you help people, people, you were a big, squishy marshmallow deserving of being devoured. I know that sounds harsh, but it's the message I received in my 1970s Chicago home. 
Fortunately, my parents also made the decision to take my sister and me to weekly religious services. And in our house of worship, I heard words like compassion, charity, justice, and acts of loving kindness. So fast forward to my early 20s when my husband's church introduced me to a world of volunteerism that I never knew existed. After having our first baby, we received meals for weeks. People we didn't even know gave us beautiful baby clothes. Cookies showed up anonymously on our doorstep. And I wondered, were the cookies poisoned? If not, why were people being so nice? I didn't understand. What did they want from me? But by watching the example of many wonderful people who gave freely, lovingly, and without expectation, I learned about generosity, volunteering, and serving. Eventually, I served as a room mother in my children's grade school. I became a volunteer Sunday school principal, and I was asked to serve as a board member on our religious community. Um, my five children have also been actively involved in a youth theater. And some of my best friendships and most hilarious experiences have come from volunteering in the costume room with other moms. When I began practicing yoga uh, 12 years ago, it opened me to another world of acceptance, one of compassion and kindness. I have yet to turn into a marshmallow. But rather, I have become a leader in my community, and I'm now the coordinator of Community Heart and Soul in Galesburg, Illinois. I've led a team of volunteers since January 2016. We are currently 19 months into the project, and our volunteers have garnered respect and contributed to our community in important ways. Let me talk about a few major observations and lessons I've learned leading a team of smart, committed, and visionary volunteers. First, people are mostly good and want to help, but some have experienced serious life pain and may have turned cynical, jaded, or hopeless. Not everyone is ready to volunteer and can be brought along. My experience is that when negatively focused folks are often watching, that they are watching from the sidelines. And then when they begin to see your project's successes, they might surprise you by showing up and asking to join in. If they don't, that's fine too. Overall, don't let their negativity hold you back. Do your work, let them know they are welcome when ready, and then move forward with your project. Offer good food. This might sound like a joke, but it's not. I function by a rule I made up. It's called the no Oreos rule. There's a bit of a story here. A coworker watched a small local business deliver snack platters to our office for weekly leadership meetings. The cheese crackers and small cookies came from a wonderful shop just around the corner, and I was happy to serve tasty, local, and affordable foods that some of our team members might not otherwise be able to enjoy. On a few occasions, the food arrived on shiny trays that my coworker thought were silver. She felt the food, which cost anywhere between $10 and $20, was an extravagance. Don't you think you're sending the wrong message to volunteers, serving them on silver platters? If it were me, she said, I'd give them Oreos. Well, first, the platters were not silver. They were stainless steel, but they did shine. Second, if you ask volunteers to serve others, you must serve them first. Not for a split second was I going to downgrade and diminish the value of my volunteers by giving them what my coworker perceived as a cheaper snack. Treat your volunteers well. To this day, my leadership team looks forward to our meetings partly because they know we always have a lovely snack platter at the center of our table. Small gestures go a long way. 
Next, appreciate your volunteers genuinely. Though I fantasize about writing beautiful handwritten thank you notes to everyone who volunteers, there just isn't enough time. Rather, I try to offer immediate, specific, and personal thanks. Some people are embarrassed by public recognition, so I decide carefully who should be called out, thanked, and praised publicly. However, one-on-one -on -one appreciation and gratitude are essential always. Communicate clearly and consistently without being rigid and ridiculous. Our group meets on Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 8 p.m. in the same location. I send out weekly reminders in the same manner, letting people know in one or two sentences what kind of work we intend to cover. What we don't do is we don't meet for the sake of meeting just because we set up a time to meet because in a meeting long ago, someone determined that meetings were important. No. We meet to address specific ideas. When we don't have a reason to gather, which happens every once in a while, we skip a week. This is also a way to honor, pe honor people's time and sneak in a break here and there. Our volunteers work hard, and they deserve breathers. The next thing I want to say is that our volunteers know that our meetings are fluid. And this is kind of an unusual approach um, to some people. What that means is that there's no guilt when people can't attend. We are 19 months into a two-year project. We've had coaches take off time for full seasons, a military person travel overseas to serve, and two moms who had babies. One of our team members is a 78-year-old pilot who flies around the world. He attends our meetings whenever he's not elsewhere. This framework has worked because the pressure to show up to perform tasks and follow through is minimal. Team members have each other's backs. We help each other and trade off responsibilities. We have always had enough volunteers for our project. Through this flexible framework, people feel relaxed and have fun. We laugh a lot in our meetings, and our volunteers have developed strong friendships. And finally, I asked our volunteers why they have chosen to participate and continue to participate in our project. So their responses were multifaceted, heartfelt, and numerous. And I don't have time to share all our comments here, but I chose three that I think were good um, examples of, of what people enjoy. One person said, I enjoy the ambiance of such a wide diversity that is represented by this group of people and their ideas, even though I don't always agree. Another person said, there's always something manageable to do. There's never a, hey, we're going to dump this on you attitude. And I think at the core, people come back because of their care and concern about our town. And then three, I didn't intend to start going to the leadership meetings because I don't consider self, myself to be a leader but rather a behind-the-scenes worker bee. Now that I've been to quite a few Wednesday night meetings, I think that we are a team of ordinary citizens who are just trying to figure things out as we go, and I like that. So my overall comment about having worked with a volunteer team for the past year and a half is that while I'm supposed to inspire them, they have inspired me. And just when I think they might be reaching burnout, I ask, are you tired? Are you guys holding on? And amazingly, say, they, amazingly, they say, no, we're not tired. We're fine. What do you want us to do next? We've created a bond, an energy, a can-do spirit, and I have yet to see anyone turn into a marshmallow. <laughs> 
Debbie, you are inspiring. It's small wonder that they um, stick with you. Uh, we also put um, some of the other quotes that your volunteers that you offered up to us, so people can check that out in the in the Google Doc. And I found myself chuckling at so many things. You, you know, I love your humor, and when you said uh, we laugh a lot in our meetings, I could I could see that you probably would. Um, even if there are no Oreos there, which are some of my favorite cookies, but I love them. <laughs> There's no poison in them, right? Right. Anyway, right. we'll get on to uh, on to our our questions. Um, thank you so much. We we got nearly 40 questions, so I've grouped many of them together that were very similar. Uh, so we aren't going to get to every single one, but I hope to get a lot of them at least to get some of these themes covered. Uh, one is about uh, certainly volunteer engagement. We've we've heard a lot of good things, and we'll see if we have a, uh, a few more because people like Cheryl in New York, Zachariah in Vermont, and Don in North Carolina are asking um, about engaging volunteers, especially in communities where it feels the pool of volunteers is very limited, and kind of the same people show up. Um, how do you go about engaging volunteers in a small town? And I, I found this very poignant from Cheryl when she says, you know, our town has lost businesses, churches, civic organizations, and doesn't even have a school, um, so everybody seems disconnected. Uh, so it's – Sarah, I'll, I'll go to you since uh, we haven't heard from you for a minute, but how do you, how do you especially in a, in a very small place, how do you, how do you get that engagement uh, going or, or back up and running? Well, I think about, you know, the idea of finding something that's going to spark a volunteer to get involved. You know, it's that, um, what I talked about a little bit at the beginning of matching someone's interests and skills with, with what you are hoping that they can do as a volunteer. So even if you have a small group of people there might be somebody you're not thinking about just because they haven't been doing volunteering in the past. And so maybe if you have something unique for them to do, it might bring them out and make them more interested. Mm. You know, we talk about volunteers in small communities. I mean, I see this, I saw this too when I went home to our town in western Iowa. Like, it does seem like a lot of people are there not a lot of people, a lot, there are people who are there doing the volunteering over and over and over again. But I do think there are places to find those unlikely volunteers, and just a couple of those can spark others to feel like, huh, maybe there is something that I could do there. Right, right, or a project that can really mm -hmm. sink their teeth into. And, Debbie, this is this is similar but a little bit different. Um, and more about recruitment, even though this is this is about kind of motivation, but a lot of people wrote in, of course, about recruiting new volunteers. And one of the problems, especially in rural areas, again, is the lack of funds to help with recruiting. It's, it's nice if you have a little bit of money to help you recruit people, but Darlene from Indiana, Audrey from North Carolina, Kate and Deborah from Kentucky are really looking for success stories when you have very limited resources, uh, you know, Limited resources, not only because there's a small pool of people, but not much money. So and anything you want to add um, around that limited resources? If you don't have a lot of money, how do, you, how do you get out there and find people? Well, I have found that we really haven't spent very money, much money on recruiting. Um, there are a couple things that we've done. Um, one comes directly out of um, the heart and soul model, which is uh, we've created – 
what's called a community network analysis. And what it's allowed us to do is pull back and analyze who is actually in our community. Um, so that has been a great tool that um, allows us to be more objective instead of thinking about only our friends and our peer group. That, so, that, so for people who like systems and charts and graphs, that ends up being a really wonderful thing. The other part of it is, I mean, what do small town rural people know how to do? They, they know how to talk to each other about certain things. So what we've done is we've just connected people. We've asked them to talk to their friends and neighbors and then also to take some risks and talk to people they might not know, the people they haven't um, connected with for maybe a decade because their kids used to go to school together and they're not, school, you know, the kids grew up and everyone went away and then the parents haven't talked to each other again. Um, so it's really about being intentional in your connections with other people. I have. I don't know that we've needed much money at all to do that. Fantastic. Um, this is a, a little bit different, but um, one in that category. Susan from Texas um, says, "I will be asking for volunteers to work hours for a matching grant. Can you give me tips? I need to recruit volunteers from my neighborhood. So maybe this is somebody who's never recruited volunteers before. She's." you know, just needs to, she's been kind of charged with finding people in her own neighborhood. Ideas, Sarah? Well, I'm just sitting here thinking about, you know, it's, you don't have to reinvent the wheel with some of this. Thinking about the the networks that you already have, the natural places that people already gather to go to those places to talk about what's happening and and the help that you might need for this matching grant um, project and, you know, use use what's already there to help you think about how to structure that so that it feels natural is one idea. Great. And Deb or, or either one of you, but we'll start with Deb. Uh, Cindy from Kentucky, uh, actually from Vermont, asks, how do we attract volunteers for fundraising? It seems many people don't like fundraising or asking people for money. And you both talked about matching skills and interests to volunteers, and often not very many people are really fond of fundraising. Any any tips around helping people cross that bridge, Debbie? Oh, that's a hard one because I don't like fundraising either. <laughs> but what I've just, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I hate asking people for money. It just feels awkward to me. Now, on the flip side, there are people who are really good at that and love it. So um, I would seek out those folks who are who already are fine and they have no issues with that. Um, those are often people who are selling things in small businesses, like, you know, Tupperware or clothing lines or whatever. They are people who are accustomed to the ask, um, and they don't have any problems being rejected, which is, I think, in the, at the end, what we all kind of fear, is that somebody's going to say no, and we're going to feel bad. Um, so I'll just I'll say that, and let me add this one other thing. I'll turn over to Sarah. I, what I've learned, because I'm working in a philanthropic organization right now, and other people in my office do ask for money, is that at the end of the day, it's about re building relationships with people. So if they trust you and they believe in your cause, they are willing to open their pocketbooks to help you and your organization. So if you can think about it in the big picture and long term, it goes a long way. Great. Great. Yeah, that's, that's a good tip. And people shouldn't worry. If somebody says no, they say no. Mm -hmm. That's not a big right. deal, really. 
Sarah, I'd like to ask you about volunteer appreciation. You both said this is really important. Your suggestions for volunteer appreciation beyond the letter, maybe beyond saying thank you, is there another way to think about volunteer appreciation to make sure they really feel appreciated, clearly important? Well, just to reiterate a point, I think I made this point and Debbie did as well, is thinking about the individual and what's going to resonate with the individual volunteer. I mean, some people love getting that certificate or that big public thank you, and other people, that's like their worst nightmare, you know? <laughs> so finding a way to say thank you that's appropriate and great for that person I think is really important. Um, Debbie and I both mentioned food. Oh, my gosh, food goes like <laughs> goes a long way. <laughs> Everybody appreciates food. But... Um, yeah, I just, sometimes it's just that simple thank you. I can't even, I mean, I think we could all probably think about, like, that thank you card that you get, and you're like, wow, I didn't even imagine that I'd get a thank you for that person, and you hang it up on your bulletin board, and every time you look at it, you, like, feel happy because you think about how you helped somebody, and, and they really mm. appreciated it. And uh, celebrations, Deb, to, you know, just... Let's all get together and pat ourselves on the back. Is that is that a piece of this as well? I absolutely think so. In fact, I was just telling myself this morning that I need to get something pulled together um, before the weather turns. I'd love, I, I've been thinking about having a barbecue in my, my backyard just to invite all of these wonderful people I've worked with to come over and hang out and enjoy food and, and good company. Um, the other thing I just wanted to add to is that sometimes people have very personal needs that they don't share, you know, readily with others, but I have one volunteer who's incredibly committed, but she lives on a very, very tight budget. Um, and so I've helped her with some food um, from time to time. I have not shared that with anybody but you guys today. Um, but So it's just personal, but I know that she appreciates that small gesture real, in, a, in a big way. So um, just getting to know your volunteers and what speaks to them, I think, is, again, about that relationship building. And when you give to them, they want to give to you, and it just keeps going back and forth. Great. Well, that takes me into kind of how do you keep volunteers engaged? How do you re retain them beyond one project uh, or bring volunteers back into the fold after they um, have maybe done some stuff for you a year back, but but you've kind of lost them. Uh, it was that kind of how you retain volunteers was on the top of mind for many in Oregon, Colorado, and Ohio. Uh, Sarah, so back to you. Ideas about how do you how do you retain volunteers and keep them engaged? Well, first of all, I think it's important for us to remember that life happens and things happen and people's schedules are all over the place and it's completely natural, I think, for some people to kind of come in and then come out for a little while because they've got things going on. And then sometimes it's just that, you know, a really nice conversation that you could have with someone if you haven't seen them for six months or so and say, you know, we're, we're starting up with whatever it is you're going to be working on. Do you have some time now that you think you might be able mm -hmm. to – to give to us and, and be very specific about 
about the the task or the work or what you're looking for. Um, I think it, it's, it really comes down to respect and understanding people's times and schedules and then finding natural ways to bring them back in to becoming involved again. Terrific. Um, and in that, let's let's now skip to uh, millennials. Uh, Deb, you might have some some things about keeping them engaged, but but we're we're going to look at this specific group because many people are looking for younger volunteers. They're looking for um, some just talked about young volunteers. Some talked about millennials. So from Washington, California, New York, just about everywhere, listeners are looking for tips to engage youth. Uh, so. Deb, I know you have some amazing young volunteers. How how did you get them involved, and how do you keep them? Oh, okay. Well, um, I you know some some people lo- love to throw millennials under the bus and say that they're lazy, but I have found the exact opposite. I have found the people in our community to be really eager to help in whatever way they can. They're, these are kids who are really socially aware. And they, if you ask them to do something that's specific to their skill set, they are more than happy to help out. So um, I was really fortunate to have an intern for, um, well, two school terms. We have a, a local college here, and this person was working on social services, and we, she was connected with our organization. And it turned out um, that she just, you know, she's like most millennials. She had wonderful ability to get online, to um, tweets and do Instagram and Facebook and all the rest. And so I just turned over most of our social networking um, content to her. And we always had an ongoing conversation, what should we post, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it was so easy, and it took her, like, I don't know, half the time it would have taken me. If, if it, it was amazing how, how easily and effortlessly she was able to do that. Um, another person came from the college also, and he helped us with a video and did a fantastic job. And that was it. That's all he did. I, I asked him, can you please do this one thing for us? And he did. And I said, hey, if you want to continue on, you're more than welcome to. We absolutely would welcome you. But he had to move on to other things, so he did. So also knowing and respecting people's time is a huge piece of that. Um, so those are just two quick examples that I have. Okay, fantastic. Uh, and, and I would say, you know, somebody says this our, our community is aging. How do we, the older generation, better engage young people? I, I wouldn't imagine it would be any different. It's finding where where they are. Um, Sarah, did you would you have anything to add? I don't think being older limits you, but you need that one in that intern or somebody at the schools or. Mm-hmm. You know, work on that one connection. Yeah, definitely. I don't think it's necessarily related to being old or young, but I was going to give an example kind of going back to something that I saw when I was at um in with some heart and soul work um and volunteering for for a heart and soul project and what they did was they had a, a talk at the high school. And then they just had sign-up sheets. They weren't like, you have to do this or, you know, you have to do this kind of work. But they had like 10 different sheets and they had all, on the top of each sheet was a kind of thing that the person could potentially be involved with. And they could just sign up for whatever they wanted. A lot of choice. Yeah, exactly. 
And so great. it wasn't kind of pigeonholing into this or that or whatever, but I thought it was a great way to, to get youth involved. That's a great tip. Uh, a number of people were concerned about handling volunteer fatigue. So from Iowa, the, Iowa, the best way to handle volunteers whose commitment seems to fade over time. Uh, from Kenneth from North Carolina, how do you combat meeting fatigue for folks who are on numerous committees and task force and keeping them engaged? Um, Sam from New York, how um, how can we help volunteers juggle commitments so they have lots of commitments? So that whole piece about volunteer fatigue or, or just kind of getting overwhelmed. Uh, Debbie, do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, and it's it's a question it's an important question and i just met with an, with somebody else this morning who is in a very similar position working with volunteers and i explained our the model we were using or are using and uh, which is fluid and um flexible and he said oh we're not like that at all we expect our volunteers to have their rears in their seats and i think and, but his volunteers are not showing up and so but mine are and and i think even though it's kind of paradoxical when you're open with people and you accept that life has its natural flows and not everybody can be at every meeting but the project's going to continue um, it just changes the dynamic of everything so I have not really had too much of a, of a problem at all with maintaining volunteers and if they get tired I just tell them take a break you know you need a rest and when you're ready come back and um, I had one lady who was helping us with a newsletter. She was an older lady, and she was happy to do that. And at some point she said, I'm going to step back from this for a while, and she did. And then when we had a big event, um, because I know she's a very social person who loves to talk to others, I asked her, will you come and sit at this table and help greet people? And she came. She did that. And now she's sort of gone back to, you know, being a little bit less involved in the project. And I'm completely fine with that. I think that that model is working for us. Terrific. Uh, I want to talk about communication issues. Uh, there are a couple people who ask things like, are there any web platforms that help with organizing, communicating, and marketing uh, volunteer opportunities? Uh, do either one of you have suggestions for platforms that are the most effective or valuable? And I do want to also throw this out to our listeners uh, you might have suggestions um, on some web platforms that you use, and you can explain why they're why they're terrific. Um, uh, Sarah, do you have any thoughts about web platforms that you've seen used at all? Well, so you mean for organizing? Yeah, for organizing, yeah. communicating, sure. um, marketing to volunteers. You know, these, these are the things we need to happen. Get back in touch with us, something like that. I mean, in terms of organizing the work of volunteers who are already part of what you're doing, um, Basecamp is a really good example or some, a program like that that is a, kind of a place where you can post things and have things for that specific group. I would also suggest that, again, I said this before, but not reinventing the wheel and thinking about what people are already using to communicate with each other as a way to um, – recruit and organize volunteering, you know, just if people are using Facebook and they're good at using Facebook, have a Facebook page, you know, a closed page or whatever, you know, use what people are already using so it's not one extra step that they have to do that's not familiar and comfortable with them. Right, right. I know that um, 
in, in Ohio, there was a town where she says, everybody uses Facebook. You know, we, we don't even bother with anything else because that's what everybody uses. Uh, Deb, uh, what what would you see as, as something that really works, um, not only to spread awareness of volunteer organizations or volunteer opportunities? How, how do you go about doing that? Well, I rely heavily on Basecamp, which is okay. um, a platform that the Orton Foundation recommended, and it's been tremendous. And what I like about it is that the person who joins – um, has control over how often they want to be notified because some people want to know every time you post something and other people only want a weekly um, sort of overview of what's happening. And then the the other feature of it um, is that even though, I mean, I think I have probably I'm approaching 200 people on my base camp, um, not all of those people are actively engaged in heart and soul in Galesburg on a daily or weekly basis. But there are people from around the country um, now who've asked to join us. They want to know what's happening with the project. They're all watching. And just when I think that nobody's watching, I hear somebody say something like, oh, yeah, we've been following you. And, you know, they tell me all sorts of things. So um, it's a wonderful tool to, you know, communicate regularly with my leadership team, which, is I, do, which I do all the time, and then other people to see more of the big picture. Um, it's been beautiful. And then, but I do have to say that not everybody has Internet and computer access, and we do have one lady in our team who does not have a computer, and I call her, you know, weekly, or she kind of knows at this point just to come to our regular meetings. But when we cancel every once in a while, I will call her or I'll go to her house and let her know that, you know, that night we're not meeting. So you have to be very sensitive to the ways in which people um, are connected to the community. Really good point. Thank you. And, and one other communication issue, which is a little bit more sensitive, uh, this is from Kelly in Vermont. Do you have suggestions for how to respond to misinformed project opposition in social media or in public meetings? So if you feel that something has really been misunderstood and you start getting some bad press or rumors or whatever, uh, what, what steps do you recommend folks take? Sarah, do you want to try to tackle that one? I guess I would say, you know, just being direct about it and, you know, whatever way, again, whatever way the community or whoever is saying, you know, the way they communicate usually about other things, use those same, those same ways to communicate about things that have been misinformed without sounding, you know, without sounding defensive or angry, you know, just to make sure that the whatever has happened, that you're, you straighten it out quickly so that it doesn't have any other ramifications, you know, for the work that you're doing. Clarify as soon as possible mm -hmm. and, and, and not sound defensive. Any other thoughts about that, Debbie? I don't know if you've had any Well, like no, that. I would echo that, and I would say that that actually happened to me, especially, right, uh, this was just a few months ago in kind of our politically charged environment. Um, somebody posted something about um, – if you want to be, you know, connected to liberal, progressive causes, and that was meant negatively, um, you should join the Heart and Soul pro Project. And mm -hmm. um, it, this was on Facebook, and I just went to that site, and I very politely, just like Sarah said, um, very politely and evenly told this person that everybody, that we have no political persuasion, that everybody in the community is invited, and that we have people of all different backgrounds and philosophies. Um, and the guy actually apologized to me, and that was the end of that. So, yeah. That's great. That's good to hear. <laughs> uh, a couple of people are also, this is 
uh, we only kind of got these two kind of weirdly, um, what about the negatives? But Jean from uh, Iowa, uh, what's the best way to handle volunteers that don't keep their commitments? And then another question from New Jersey, what about volunteers who um, are obstructive or unproductive, but they're still a member of the community, they come out, but somehow they really aren't that helpful and or they don't keep their commitments. Uh, Sarah, you've dealt with many, many, many volunteers. Yes. Uh, <laughs> what, what about these that, that uh, others struggle with? Well, I'll tackle Jean's first because I think it's the easiest. <laughs> I mean, you always have to find out the real story, you know. There's probably some reason why someone – well, there is, not probably. There is some reason why someone is, you know, falling short of commitments. And it might be something, you know, like they're sick or somebody else is sick. Or it could just be that they're just tired, you know, and they just honestly are don't feel like it's the right time to be volunteering. So I think – you know, having an honest conversation so that you're not just kind of trying to put a story together in your head without knowing the facts is the way to go on that one. Or you're, you're fluid like Debbie and let them go and right. come back when you want. Exactly, <laughs> because, I mean, they're volunteers, right? right. They're volunteers. Uh-huh. Um, the one about being obstructionist, I feel like that's a little bit more challenging. Um Again, I guess when I think about, like, building the spirit of your volunteer team and keeping everybody happy and motivated and kind of on the same page, when you have somebody who's not like that, it can be a challenge to everybody's morale. And I guess that's the difficult part of it is that you want to respect everyone's thoughts and opinions. But if someone is truly making the kind of the feeling of everybody else come down, that's not a good thing. So, again, I mean, I said it before, but having, you know, having a pretty, you know, honest and direct conversation about, you know, maybe maybe they just don't agree with something you're doing and just having a conversation about it can make them feel like they have an out to get out of it if they need to, you know, just providing that opportunity. Debbie, any follow-up from you? I don't know. I I, um, I would say the exact same thing as Sarah. Um, I, I I have this happen to me too. And uh, about two weeks into the start of our project, somebody walked in um, and said, "Your program is dead, and it's not going to succeed." And that really rattled me because we hadn't even <laughs> launched. <laughs> um, but you know, that was where I just had to kind of compartmentalize and say, "Okay, that was that lady. That is her point of view, and she's the one who ended up." later joining us. Um, she came to our mm. summit. She now sends me emails saying, you guys are doing an awesome job. I'm always kind of shocked um, when I get those and so very pleased also that she has remained open enough to sort of change her mind as she's seen things progress. Um, so, yeah, like Sarah said, sometimes they're just very personal reasons and people are frustrated. They're hopeless. Um, they do want things to su- succeed, but they just don't know how to get there. Um, so it's it's very individual, I'd say. Okay. Thank you. Uh, this is an interesting from West Virginia. Um, Tim needs to persuade an appointed board that volunteers and small efforts are worthwhile. They're not um, because his board seems to mainly be interested in large, sustaining money makers. So events that are money makers or something that brings money in. But that whole cultivation of volunteers and why that's important. 
Sarah, do you want to? Yeah, my guess is that he could find a probably right in his backyard or somewhere not too far away a really great example that he could use of something local as a way that volunteers have been used to make some great things happen. And I don't think you can do anything more but give a great local example as a way to persuade someone, you know, that it's a great idea. I understand what he's what he's against or what he's up against because, you know, some of it's just the like some people not not that they don't understand but they not they don't see the like the full picture of the real value of a volunteer because it's not just the volunteer's time or effort, but it's also the fact that, you know, you're strengthening that fabric of your community. Like, there's all the other things that go along with that, that it's not just about the volunteer's time. So I think being able to paint that picture and show some great local examples that are already there is a way to help further that conversation. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so the, let me... Uh, Back to this is this is kind of a quick round for for you, Deb. There are two that that I hope these are kind of quick answers. Uh, where does somebody seek volunteers before school opens? I, I think this is probably in the in the summertime. Are there different places to uh, to find volunteers when the schools aren't happening? I think this is what they're uh, Whitney's after in North Carolina. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I wasn't sure what that was about either. I was wondering if maybe she was looking for PTO volunteers to kind of quickly get something up and running in the schools. Um, I, I don't know. Without knowing the circumstances, it's hard to say exactly, you know, how to answer that. I I would well, say at least in my – go ahead. No, well, I mean, you know, maybe somebody else can, can venture a, a guess or she can be a little bit more clear about that question. So I, I guess we're we're all just guessing. So. Maybe yeah. we can move to, um, uh, I should have asked this earlier, but uh, from New York, have you seen any success in using text messaging lists to mobilize volunteers? Do you use that at all, Debbie? Not really. And I have used it for other purposes, and people tend to get annoyed because they don't want to be, they don't want to get a, a message every time somebody responds to a group text. So I haven't right. figured that one out yet. Okay. So. Oh, yeah, I was just going to contribute something. I don't know if this is relevant or not, but one of our old tried-and-true Peace Corps tools is called the Seasonal Calendar, and it's basically like mapping out throughout the year what's going on in your community and who's involved with it. And it's a way to identify, like, times that things are good to happen and times that people are available or not available. And while it's used more in like a maybe a rural setting where you're talking about seasonal calendar in terms of like what's going on with the land so people are busy or not, I think it also is applicable to our life in the United States. Like when I'm thinking about her question about summer and what's going on and who's mm -hmm. available and not, thinking about what's going on in your town and where are the places that people are gathering and what people are doing? And I think maybe that can help you think about the ebbs and flows of time and people and availability. Well, that sort of also takes me to this is kind of a, a structural thing. There are a couple questions about st structure. And one was organizing efforts, uh, how to organize efforts and what structures to reference for, for roles, et cetera. 
Debbie, how do you organize? You've got a lot going on with Community Heart and Soul, a lot of different projects that, that might be happening, probably a number of committees. Do you feel that there's an organizational structure that works for you when you're dealing with a lot of volunteers? You mean something like the the calendar that Sarah is talking about? Or well, just either that or, you know, do you, do you have an, a, a, an advisory council and then committees that, that meet separately off of that? Uh, for some of your volunteers, I, th I think that's what they're looking at. Do you have a, uh, a database of volunteers and how is, you know, kind of what's included in that? How can people connect to that? Um, are there... Yeah, for, for us, it hasn't worked out. I'm sorry. It hasn't worked out quite that neatly. It, I mean, it, it sounds like it would be perfect. You have sort of a core steering group and then you, you establish committees. Um, but we found that people weren't necessarily following through with their committee work when we tried that. So um, we just began to meet as a whole, as a group. And now um, everybody's skill set has been identified. So I know that Karen is our graphic designer. Anytime I need something, she and I work together to get that done. If we bring other people in, that's great. But she's sort of the lead on that. Other people are on our data team. Um, you know, that that's kind of how we function. And last, yesterday we had our meeting last night. And I have a project in mind, and it's going to require some carpentry skills and also some, um, like, digital knowledge. And I had these – I had a 78-year-old guy in one chair and then a maybe 30-year-old guy in another chair sitting next to each other. And I said, okay, you guys are perfect. You're right there sitting next to each other. Um, I need both of your skills. Let's go with this project. Tell me what we need to do. And it – so it's <laughs> – and and we're going to do that, you know, the project. So it was it was really beautiful, and I didn't have to just send them off to figure it out by themselves. Okay, fantastic. Okay, we're almost out of time, so there are just a few questions left. Um, we I want to encourage our uh, audience members to take a look at the questions, add your wisdom to uh, those questions. If you have tips or thoughts uh, that you'd like to add, please do. Uh, for uh, both of you, I'd like to ask you, what's the first step you would take to engage and motivate and reinvigorate volunteers? We've been talking about it for this last hour, but that one last thought you want to make sure everybody gets. Sarah? I'd say just find a way to show volunteers how they fit into the larger picture. Fantastic. And Debbie? Um, well, I was going to say, if you're looking for volunteers now, make a list of the people that you know, and then people you you know who you think, oh, they wouldn't do that, they wouldn't help, but include them. And then start asking and make a game of it. See how many people can tell you no, and you actually might be surprised <laughs> at how many people say yes. Um, so that's what I wanted to say. Okay, well, what a great call. Thank you both um, so much, uh, Sarah Leitner, for your stories and wisdom. It was great having you on this call. Thank you, Fran. And Debbie Moreno, thank you for sharing your enthusiasm, humor, and your knowledge, and good luck to you as you continue on your journey with Community Heart and Soul. Thank you very, very much. So, and thanks to all of our guests for a terrific call and caring so much about small-town America. Uh, we hope you... Um, 
Take a moment to fill out also our brief survey to help us continue to improve our call series. Look for the link to that um, under announcements at the top of the document. And again, we encourage you to add to the document as you will. We'll be talking about youth leadership on August 17th. That's also a Thursday, but at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's an hour earlier than our call started today. So stay tuned for more on that. I'd like to thank the Orton Family Foundation who make these sessions possible. Look for a recording of this call that will be sent out to all registrants and posted on our website, www.orton.org, in the next few days. For the Orton Family Foundation, I'm Fran Stoddard. Have a great day. Bye-bye.